Good evening. I'm Ron Harris, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Lewis E. Harris Lecture on Public Policy. The Harris Lecture was created to examine major public policy issues and to provide an opportunity for interaction between students, the business community, and the academic community in Nebraska. The annual lecture was endowed by SmithKline Corporation, now known as GlaxoSmithKline, <clears throat> to honor my father upon his retirement as chairman of SmithKline. Uh, Lou Harris was also a founder of Harris Laboratories here in Lincoln, which is now known as MDS Pharma Services, which is one of the world's largest uh, independent scientific testing and research facilities. The Harris Lecture is part of the E.N. Thompson Forum on World Issues. And I want to thank the forum staff and the program committee for their leadership in uh, arranging and developing this year's Harris Lecture. Thanks also to the LEAD Center for its generous support and to the uh, Nebraska Educational Telecommunications Cable Channel 21, KRUN Radio, KLIN Radio, the University Bookstore, the Nebraska Humanities Council, and St. Paul United Methodist Church. The Nebraska Humanities Council hosts live simulcasts of this lecture in Scotts Bluff, North Platte, Kearney, Wayne, Columbus, and Omaha. And St. Paul hosts follow-up discussions at the church every, th every Thursday after the lecture. Before I introduce our speaker, I would like to remind you of the next forum on Monday, February 25th, featuring Richard uh, Chizik, who's Vice President for Governmental Affairs of the National Association of Evangelicals, known as the Green Evangelist. At the conclusion of tonight's lecture, you'll have the opportunity to ask questions of our speaker. Uh, please write down your questions on the cards that are provided and pass them uh, to the ushers. Cecil Stewart, Dean Emeritus of the College of Agriculture at UNL, and president of the Jocelyn Castle Institute for Sustainable Development will moderate the Q&A. Following the questions and question and answer session, Mr. Lovins will sign books in the orchestra lobby. And now a little bit about our, our speaker. Amory Lovins is a, is a physicist and co-founder, chairman and chief scientist of the Rocky Mountain Institute. The Rocky Mountain Institute works with uh, businesses, organizations, and individuals on the efficient use of energy and resources and on, being, uh, and on being ever better stewards of the environment. He is uh, a dropout of both Harvard and Oxford, which puts him in pretty good class uh, and with people including Bill Gates, but he's a holder of, ten or, uh, of numerous 10 or 12 uh, honorary degrees, including one from Oxford. He's published in 29 books and hundreds, of, and hundreds of papers. His work has been recognized by a MacArthur Fellowship and a Time Hero for the Planet Award, among many others too numerous to mention. He advises governments and major firms worldwide on advanced energy and resource efficiency, and has recently led the technical redesign of 30 billion, with a B, 30 billion worth of facilities in 29 different sectors to achieve large energy savings at typically lower capital costs. The Wall Street Journal named Mr. Lovins 
one of 39 people worldwide most likely to change the course of business in the 90s, and I suspect he still holds that stature today. Newsweek has praised him as one of the Western world's most influential energy thinkers in Car Magazine, ranked him as the 22nd most powerful person in the global automotive industry. During his talk this evening, I'm sure you'll learn more about his background, his sense of humor, and his amazing intellect. So will you please join with me in welcoming Avery Lovins to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Thank you very much. Uh, after that introduction, I can't wait to hear what I'm going to say. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, I'd like to follow Raymond Williams' advice that to be truly radical is to make hope possible, not despair convincing, by suggesting a straightforward and profitable set of answers to some big problems about oil and security and climate. I'll start with a little economic history. In 1850, the fifth biggest industry in the United States was catching whales, and most houses were lit by whale oil lamps. That was about, <clears throat> I believe, 29 years before Edison's electric light. But whales were getting shy and scarce, the catches were going down, the prices of whale oil were going up, and this elicited competition, mainly from oil and gas made at the time from coal. Uh, and in the nine years before Drake struck oil in Pennsylvania in 1859, over five-sixths of whale oil's lighting market went away to those competitors to which the whalers had paid no attention. Uh, they uh, were astounded to run out of customers before they ran out of whales. And the uh, Remnant whale populations were saved by technological innovators and profit-maximizing capitalists. The whalers were soon reduced to begging for federal subsidies on national security grounds. Uh, now, oil feels a bit like this today because even though the, the uh, time it takes to get off the stuff will be longer because of the long lifetimes of vehicle fleets, we have spent several decades now building up a very powerful portfolio of ways to save oil or substitute for oil, and no one had bothered to add it up until my team did in 2004, and we found it's more than enough to replace all the oil America uses at about a sixth the cost of buying the stuff. So that's what I'll describe. It's all laid out in a book called Winning the Oil Endgame, whose forwards are by George Schultz, the former Secretary of State, Chairman of Bechtel, and to Mark Moody Stewart, the former chairman of Royal Dutch Shell. It's a business-based oil solution that nobody's arguing with. It's all thoroughly laid out and peer-reviewed, very independent perspective, co-sponsored by the Office of the Secretary of Defense and the Chief of Naval Research, and written for business and military leaders, not for political leaders. They can hear about it later from their constituents. It's built around competitive strategy business cases for cars, trucks, planes, uh, fuels, and military. And you can get the whole thing in all its technical backup and various summaries free at oilendgame.com. 
It's a detailed roadmap for how the United States can get completely off oil by the 2040s with a much stronger economy led by business for profit. The transition could uh, follow a pretty straightforward course. Oil use and oil imports in the United States, rather than rising steeply as normally forecast, could bend downwards, as shown by the green curves here, by redoubling the efficiency of using oil at an average cost of $12 per saved barrel, year 2000 dollars. And then we could turn the <clears throat> use and imports down even more steeply along the blue curves by replacing the other half of the oil with a combination that's about three-fifths saved natural gas and about two-fifths advanced biofuels, such as cellulosic ethanol. That has an average cost of 18 bucks a barrel. The most expensive of any kind of measure we assume would compete with $26 crude oil coming into a refinery, and there's very little that costs that much. We also know that this sort of thing works because we've done it before. We had a very steep decline, much steeper than, than I've assumed <clears throat> for the future. The last time we paid attention to oil, that was from 1977 to 85, and in those eight years, the economy grew 27%, but oil use fell 17%. Oil imports fell by half. Imports from the Persian Gulf fell 87%. They would have been gone in one more year if we'd kept that up. And indeed, OPEC's exports were cut by half, breaking their pricing power for a decade because we customers, especially in America, the Saudi Arabia of negabarrels, uh, turned out to have more market power than the supply cartel. We could save oil faster than they could conveniently sell less oil. Well, that was then this is now, you are here, but <clears throat> we could rerun that old play all over again a lot better. <clears throat> and suppose that over the next, say, 17 years, we invested $180 billion once, half of it to retool the car, truck, and plane industries, half of it <clears throat> to build <clears throat> a modern biofuel industry, and suppose that our success in doing those things crashed the world oil price down to 26 bucks a barrel in 2025. That was actually the official forecast when we did this study in 2004. And in that case, against $26 oil, that $180 billion investment would return a $70 billion a year net return, very handsome return. As a free byproduct, we'd emit a quarter less carbon dioxide into the air would get a million new jobs, three-quarters of them in rural and small-town America, quite a lot, I dare say, in Nebraska, and we get to save a million jobs now at risk, mainly in automaking, where we get to decide whether we want to continue importing efficient cars to displace oil or whether to make efficient cars and import neither the oil nor the cars. That sounds smarter somehow. And because the business case is so compelling, with a spread between the average $15 a barrel cost of getting off oil and the $90 a barrel cost of buying oil, it turns out <clears throat> we can do this transition without any new fuel taxes, subsidies, mandates, or federal laws, or anything else that either party doesn't like or could mess up. So we're not going to the sausage factory in Washington for anything on this. There are some public policies I'll mention that would make the transition 
happen faster and easier <clears throat> by supporting and not distorting the business logic, but they can all be done at a state level or administratively. The key technologically <clears throat> is in transportation, which uses about 70% of the oil, although there are also big opportunities in the other 30% in buildings and industry. But on transport, actually we can triple the efficiency of cars and trucks and planes with respected paybacks of roughly two years, one year, and four or five years at present fuel prices. Uh, so that's equivalent to tripling efficiency at a cost that's uh, like buying gasoline at 57 cents a gallon, diesel for your 18-wheeler at 25 cents a gallon, Jet A for your plane at 46 cents a gallon. And it's a common technological recipe that we use to do this. You make the vehicles lighter or slippery in, using, in moving uh, through the air along the road, and you give them advanced propulsion. This will also often give you better performance. Uh, <clears throat> for example, this carbon fiber diesel hybrid concept car from Opel does 115 miles an hour and 94 miles a gallon, although not at the same moment. Uh, <clears throat> and <clears throat> surprisingly, the ultralighting that doubles the efficiency of carbon fiber concept cars like these is free. It does not increase the volume production cost of the car because it's offset by simpler automaking and a two or three times smaller propulsion system. And the technologies keep getting better. They've already gotten significantly better than we assumed four years ago. But I want to challenge the basic assumption among many people who make cars or car policy that to make cars efficient, you must make them squinchy, sluggish, unsafe, costly, or ugly, and you wouldn't really want one. So then it's the job of government to figure out how to get you to buy one anyway through cafe standards or gasoline taxes. And of course, we had a 20-odd year standoff over which one to use, so neither happened. But you know, we don't think about consumer electronics by that kind of trade-off. How many of you still buy vinyl phonograph records instead of digital media? Any antiquarians in the crowd? Yeah, a few, that's fine. But most of us understand that the medium has been redefined by engineering advances that change our expectations. How many of you would still buy a cathode ray tube television instead of a flat panel television? Not a whole lot. Well, <clears throat> if we do the same kind of redesign on cars and make efficiency a byproduct of breakthrough design, <clears throat> then we do an end run around the political gridlock and the automakers would have a much more robust business model. They would only need to worry about whether they make better and cheaper cars than their rivals and not about random variables they cannot control like oil price and public policy. So to understand how to do this magic, you just need to look at the physics of a car. A typical car uses every day about 100 times its own weight in ancient plants. Where does that energy go? Well, <clears throat> seven-eighths of it never gets to the wheels. It's lost in the engine, in idling, and driveline, and accessories. And of the one-eighth that does get to the wheels, <clears throat> half of that either heats the tires and road or heats the air that the car pushes aside. 
and it's only the last 6% that actually accelerates the car and then heats the brakes when you stop. But only a 20th of the mass you're accelerating is you. The other 1920th is a heavy steel car, so only 5% of that 6%, or 0.3% of the fuel energy actually moves the driver. After 120 years of devoted engineering effort, this is not very gratifying. <clears throat> the good news, though, is that three-quarters of the energy it takes to move the car is caused by its weight, and every unit of energy you can save at the wheels saves an additional seven units of energy you don't need to waste getting it to the wheels. So there is enormous leverage in making the car radically lighter weight. <clears throat> Henry Ford and Ferdinand Porsche, Colin Campbell, or Colin uh, Chapman, all, all of the great uh, car designers have understood this. Henry Ford said that, you know, excess weight is, may be desirable in a steamroller, but nowhere else. And whenever anyone suggests to me I might increase weight or add a part, I look into decreasing weight and eliminating a part. Just right. <clears throat> well, there are three broad ways you can take weight out of a car uh, by cho choosing different materials. You can use light metals like aluminum, magnesium, titanium, which work fine. They're fairly expensive, but starting to become worthwhile. <clears throat> they already are in Europe. There are new ultralight steels that look a lot cheaper, not quite as light. The strongest and lightest solution is carbon fiber composites, and that's what this half-million-dollar handmade SLR McLaren car is made of uh, from Mercedes. This particular one got T-boned by a Golf, which was totaled. All it did uh, hitting the side of the McLaren was to pop off a side panel, which they'll pop back on and fix the scratch later. But the interesting features under the hood, if you look at the front corners of the McLaren, in each corner you find a seven and a half pound crush cone made of carbon fiber. And those two cones weighing 15 pounds, 0.4% as much as the car, can absorb the entire crash energy of the car running into a wall at 65 miles an hour because these materials can absorb six to 12 times as much crash energy as steel and can do so more smoothly. So you can use the crush length up to twice as effectively. So with such light but strong materials that decouple size from weight, we can make cars bigger, which is protective and comfortable, without also making them heavy, which is hostile and inefficient. Therefore, we can save oil and lives and indeed money all at the same time. This is well known to people who uh, da hinten kommt sie schon quer. Hohe Geschwindigkeit knallt da. Auto zerlegt sich in die Teile. Da wird natürlich auch Energie abgebaut, ist klar, aber die ist da locker. Sechster Gang gewesen. And the best news is that Catherine Leg has walked out of the medical center under your own power. How are you feeling? A bit shaken, but I'm okay, as you can see. Oh. Sorry. All my bits are intact, so it's good. Goes to show how strong the cars are. Where where do you have some, some injuries? Oh, I just banged my knee. Car upside down. You you bang your legs on the, the bulkhead and on the steering column and stuff. So just a bit of bruising, which uh, won't look too attractive in my dress in the Atlantic's banquet tonight. But. Yeah. And by the way, her car is made of uh, a carbon fiber epoxy, which is brittle compared to the very tough 
thermoplastics I would use which absorb about twice as much crash energy per pound. Now, the problem with these materials, which are well known in, say, sporting goods, is that we use them mainly in military and aerospace applications with uh, a thousand times smaller volume and higher cost than we need for cars. But I got encouraged about the possibility of bridging that cost gap when I met a young engineer at the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works in the mid-90s. He just led the design of a fighter plane that was 95% carbon fiber, one-third lighter but two-thirds cheaper than the light metal plane it replaced because it was designed from scratch to be made out of carbon, not metal. Well, this was so weird he couldn't find a military customer, so I was able to hire him at one bounce later to do the same thing for cars, which we did. And what we ended up with uh, was an uncompromised mid-sized suburban assault vehicle uh, weighing uh, a little less than half as much as the steel equivalent, but safer even if they hit each other. Uh, and the first version we designed with a couple of industry partners was 0 to 60 and 8.2 and running on a hydrogen fuel cell at the equivalent of 114 miles a gallon. Uh, and uh, later on we looked at a gasoline hybrid version with a Prius-like powertrain, <coughs> a little peppier, 0 to 60 and 7.1, and it would get 60, uh, 67 miles a gallon on gasoline. Now that hybrid version would have an extra sticker price of only two and a half thousand bucks over the equivalent steel car uh, because the ultra lighting, as I'll explain, is free and the extra price is only because it's a hybrid, but the hybrid you need is three times smaller than usual. So it's less than a two-year payback at U.S. prices or one year abroad. It can look like whatever you want. Here's uh, what's called in the trade an active outdoor lifestyle Gen X Gen Y crossover vehicle which, remember, was done in 2000 when crossovers were still a gleam in the eye, but now there's a lot of stuff on the road that looks just like this. We feel kind of flattered. If you were to fold down the right seats instead of the rear seats, you could put in two full-size kayaks and two people. You steer and control it with a right or a left side stick, or if you're British, you put them on the right. Virtual display, all functionality and software. It's really a computer with wheels, not a car with chips. Sony PlayStation 10, way cool. And, but, but what's more interesting is how you design it and how you build it. To, to get it that light, you have to make the weight savings snowball. This is called mass decompounding. Normally when you save a pound in a car, you actually end up saving about a pound and a half because you need less suspension to hold it up, less brakes to stop it, less engine to accelerate it, and so on. So there are indirect weight savings as well. But you can multiply those much bigger in this way. You, you start off by making the car as light and slippery as you can think of, so you need less power to run it, and this makes it easier to use advanced propulsion systems and make them smaller. The chassis parts get smaller. Smaller is good because then you have better packaging. You can put in more crush space for the same exterior and interior size, and that's good because you're lightweight. But it looks like you're going to pay more for the exotic materials, the special propulsion systems, the design innovation. But then you work the design cycle. You go around this loop a few times, and as you do, you save more and more weight because you're not only making parts smaller, having to move less stuff around, you're also getting rid of many parts. In a good series hybrid, for example, 
you can get rid of the transmission, clutch, flywheel, axles, differentials, drive shaft, U-joints, starter, alternator, they disappear. So you get these jumps in weight savings, and by the time you get through, you're using very little of the ultralight materials and the exotic propulsion system. The assembly gets radically simplified, and it ends up costing about what you started with, maybe less. It can also be very safe. Uh, here's the simulation of running that SUV design <clears throat> into a wall head-on at 35 miles an hour. There's no damage to the passenger compartment. Or you can run it head-on into a steel SUV twice its weight, each going 30 miles an hour, combined speed 60. Um, there's a typo here, which I will correct. 30. Yes, continuous improvement. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and you'll still be protected from serious injury. I don't know any car on the road that can do these things. And what's even more interesting is the radically simplified manufacturing. The carbon fiber body that protects you so well and is incredibly stiff, about twice as stiff as a normal sports sedan, has only 14 parts. And you notice they're suspended from rings like an airframe rather than built up from a tub, which is our legacy of the horse and buggy days. Each of the parts, except maybe the bottom one, can be lifted with one hand and no hoist. In fact, the big part on the side, you'll see Tom Friedman lifting a little later with one hand. I can lift it briefly with one finger. Can't do that with steel. Each of these 14 parts is made with one low-pressure die set. Normally, in a steel body, you'd have 10 or 20 times this many parts, each made with an average of four progressive steel stamping die sets. So your tooling cost just went down by a factor of about 100. The parts then snap precisely together for bonding like a kid's plastic toy, but a lot stronger. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, therefore, you don't need the jigs, robots, and welders of the body shop. And if you lay color in the mold, you don't need the paint shop. And uh, those are the two hardest and costliest parts of making the car. So you end up needing at least two-fifths less capital uh, than you would for the leanest plant in the industry today. That's a game changer. It's quite a tough material. Tom Friedman did a Discovery Channel feature, and you notice that side, the biggest and most complex, heavily loaded part of the car, has this lightness to it. Here. But it's the folks at Fiberforge say we could see these on the road in five to six years. These are the materials. I can't lift this. Sure you could. It's not steel. It's carbon fiber. Whoa! <laughs> I'm strong. I'm not that strong. And uh, All the major car companies... So here's the part we just formed, Tom. But once it's trimmed, it can look just like these other parts. You say these things are tough, right? Oh, absolutely. Very tough. It's going to see just how tough. I'm gonna break one of these. Just plastic. Try, you wanna try jumping on it? Sure. Here, why don't you try jumping on it on the floor? Somebody got a bigger hammer? Here, give me that. Darn it. <laughs> one of the car guys, you know, Tappet Brothers Click and Clack came out recently, took an eight pound maul to this one, and it just bounced off. You don't even see marks on it. The, uh, this stuff is actually tougher than titanium, and 
This is, besides being my carbon cap, this is a test piece for some helmets that uh, <clears throat> a little spin-off fiber forge is, is shipping. And uh, it's, you can tell it's really stiff if I bang on it a bit. Rings like a bell. Plastics, you see, have changed since the graduate. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> this, uh, if, if you make cars out of this stuff, uh, half the weight and half the fuel use go away, it gets safer and it costs the same to make. And in U.S. terms, it's like finding a Saudi Arabia under Detroit. I hasten to add that you can make perfectly good hypercars out of light metal or out of ultralight steels and the market's going to sort out which materials when. I've just dwelled a bit on the carbon fiber composites because they're a lot less familiar. And the, the secret sauce here is not in the materials, it's in how you organize the designers. To achieve that SUV design, which met requirements the industry had not previously been able to meet, uh, our Skunk Works guy uh, put uh, colleagues around a table, there were seven of them all together, collectively responsible for meeting these very demanding and seemingly impossible requirements for the whole vehicle. Each of them was also responsible for a major system, vehicle dynamics, informatics, occupant environment, uh, propulsion, uh, and so on. But there were no requirements for those systems because we didn't want to make his problem into her problem. We wanted the whole team to work the vehicle together as an integrative design problem and turn trade-offs into synergies. So we were able to achieve these unusual results, not because we were smarter than the folks in, in uh, the auto companies, not because we knew as much as they do about cars, but because we organized ourselves differently. And also because we used another Skunk Works trick of designing in the future. When the Soviets shot down Francis Gary Powers in his U-2, uh, <clears throat> Kelly Johnson at the Skunk Works did not say, I'm going to design an incrementally improved U-2. He said, I want to own the skies for decades, so we're going to jump to a completely different design space, and we're going to build a Blackbird. I don't know how, but we'll figure it out. Because he knew that if you think of the present design space as a rubber band and you keep trying to stretch it towards where you want to get to that's far off, you get more and more resistance and ultimately it breaks. But if you jump to a new rubber band in the new design space, adventurous though it is, you can then define layers of intelligently managed risk control that will let you stretch your rubber bands back towards where you are now by enough to accommodate the immaturity of the technology. Some stuff won't be ready for prime time yet, but you have fallback positions for that. And you know that as the technology ripens, it will then relax and pull you back to where you wanted to get to all along. This is starting to happen now in the auto industry. Here's a concept car called the 1X hypercar class vehicle that, that Toyota showed in October 2007. And uh, it has the same interior volume as a Prius, but twice the fuel efficiency and a third the weight made of carbon fiber with a 
little half-liter engine tucked in under the rear seat. It's flex-fuel, it's a plug-in hybrid. And if you take away the extra 20 kilograms of batteries that make it a plug-in hybrid, make it just an ordinary hybrid, then it weighs 400 kilos, which is exactly what I said in 1991, a good four-seat carbon car should weigh. Too much hilarity from the industry, as you can imagine. But the day before Toyota announced this car, Torre, the world's biggest maker of carbon fiber, announced a third of a billion dollar plant in Nagoya to mass produce carbon fiber car parts for Toyota, Nissan, and others. And that juxtaposition of those two announcements was widely and I think correctly read to signal strategic intent. They're not doing this for amusement. By November 13th last year, Bill Ford was saying that starting 2012, which is almost tomorrow in the car business, weight reduction, he said, becomes a critical part of our strategy. And they're doing it because synergistic benefits of weight reduction are even greater than we anticipated. The following day, his CEO, Alan Mulally, said, yeah, by starting 2012, we're going to be taking 250 to 750 pounds out of every car we make to capture those synergistic benefits. And soon after that, Nissan announced that by 2015, all their cars would be an average of 15% lighter. Ultralighting, lightweighting in varying degrees is now starting to emerge as a hot strategic trend in automaking. So we can now start to see how to connect the dots. If you take a good hybrid like a, say, Toyota Prius and you drive it properly, not the way Consumer Reports says to, it, you'll roughly double your efficiency. Now that's without using diesels, by the way. We didn't assume those in our study because we were not yet confident they could meet ever-ratcheting air quality requirements for fine particulates. There may be even another solution to that I'll mention later. Now, if you take a good hybrid and put it in an ultralight car with better aerodynamics and better tires, you redouble its efficiency. Now you're using a quarter of the oil per mile that you are now. If you then run it on cellulosic ethanol E85, you save another three quarters of the remaining oil. Now you're using a sixteenth of the oil you use today per mile. And of course, we can then pay the farmers for taking carbon out of the air and sticking it back in tilth where it belongs. If you then do a good plug-in hybrid, and those are heading toward the market. In fact, I just spun off such a company last month then you again at least redouble oil efficiency per mile and that could be an attractive deal to bring the utilities in on to use the distributed battery storage uh, <clears throat> to make power plants on wheels. Well, so far we've saved 97% of the oil per mile we use today. By the way, only the first Three of these steps are in our study. We didn't assume plug-in hybrids, nor did we assume, although they could well come in, hydrogen fuel cells, which actually can compete with the biofuels when you make the cars this efficient, and they would emit two to six times less carbon per mile, even if you made the hydrogen out of natural gas, as we typically do now, and let the carbon go in the air. But of course, you could also make renewable hydrogen. Now, there are a lot of advances coming at us in propulsion as well. For example, there are very 
fast, precise, light, cheap electronic valves that give you very precise control of fuel and air injection. And you can put them under closed-loop digital control. And if you do that for both fuel and air, you can use very unusual combustion sequences and cycles, which are expected to yield at least half again the efficiency of a diesel, maybe more, burning any fuel cleanly on the fly without needing to clean up the exhaust, and also in a smaller, lighter, and cheaper engine for the same torque. The first such digital engine ran in January '07 at Sturman Industries near Colorado Springs, and they've been progressing rapidly. Another example uh, of a powertrain advances work at the Sloan Automotive Lab at MIT. Instead of mixing ethanol with gasoline and just burning the mixture, you can burn gasoline, but then have a little ethanol canister in your car that you replace every few months, and you take a tiny bit of ethanol and squirt it into the cylinder when you're running at very high compression, maybe three times normal. And you know how rubbing alcohol cools your skin? Evaporating ethanol into the cylinder, even in very small amounts, will cool it so much that it prevents knock, even at very high compression. So you can end up with an engine half the size and weight of what you got now, delivering the same torque 25 to 35% more efficiently. And that way, even the small amount of ethanol we have now could be stretched to cover the whole fleet. You may ask, what about plug-in hybrids? Well, of course, the key to making them work is to make the car light and slippery so the batteries become affordable. And even if they run on coal power at night, they can still reduce carbon emissions compared to what we're driving now. They can charge with cheap off-peak electricity and sell valuable stored electricity back to the grid at peak hours. And also, they expand markets for things like wind power. All this takes a smart garage that lets the car talk to the grid through your house. So in the utilities vision through their think tank, EPRI, Electric Power Research Institute, you can end up with the car uh, via the house talking to and swapping power with the grid and being integrated with on-site and otherwise distributed renewables with cogeneration with demand-side management, and so on, uh, along with all the other resources on the grid. So if you had, for example, a typical summertime daily load shape on the California grid, and you put in five million plug-in hybrids, they could use night power like this, and then on the hottest days, you could use that stored power to shave the peak. Utilities will pay a lot for that, and cars are parked about 96% of the time, usually in habitual places. It turns out that plug-in hybrid batteries or fuel cell electric vehicles uh, in a super-efficient light vehicle fleet would have about 6 to 12 times as much electric capacity as is in all the power plants now on the grid. So it doesn't take very much vehicle-to-grid power sale to put the coal and nuclear plants out of business. It turns out that this peak shaving is so valuable that the first roughly 2 million U.S. drivers to do it will get back the whole cost of their car. And uh, also, if you had a half-plug-in hybrid light vehicle fleet, 
the National Renewable Energy Lab figures that this would make a night market for about 230 billion watts of extra wind power, which would then run whenever the wind blows and make more annual electricity than all our coal plants now produce. So you start to see some interesting ways in which uh, plug-in hybrids or fuel cell cars uh, could ultimately address up to two-thirds of the CO2 problem, not just the uh, <clears throat> car part, but also a lot of the power plant part. It's burning oil and making electricity each produce about two-fifths of the world's fossil CO2. Now just to finish up on the oil endgame, I, I want to turn briefly to the supply side. Uh, once we've saved half the oil, the other half can come from a mixture I, I mentioned of saved natural gas and advanced biofuel. The official projections show gas use going up a lot, mainly through liquefied natural gas bought expensively from the same sorts of countries we know and love that sell us oil, maybe some others, but similar issues. But it turns out that actually we can save half our gas uh, <clears throat> at about an eighth of its price, a tenth of its recent price. And the biggest chunk, two-thirds of that saving, comes from saving electricity because peak electricity is made almost entirely of natural gas in extremely inefficient simple cycle gas turbines. They're so inefficient that if you save 1% of the electricity in the country, including peak hours, you thereby save 2% of total gas use and you cut the price of natural gas by three or 4%. So there's enormous leverage to save gas from saving electricity, which is worthwhile anyway. So actually this part of the gas saving, two thirds of it has a negative cost. Then there's biofuels. I am not talking about corn ethanol, which is a rather small and costly and heavily subsidized resource, but rather cellulosic ethanol made of woody, weedy stuff, wheat straw, switchgrass, corn stover if you like, uh, miscanthus, uh, poplar. And it turns out that that gives you about twice the yield of corn ethanol with lower investment and up to eight times better net energy yield. So you can get almost four million barrels a day of that stuff without using any cropland, any subsidies, any water. And then you have a little bit left over that's more expensive but is still cost effective as a feedstock in petrochemicals. To show you the pace at which the biofuels sector is starting to mature, Brazil has replaced a quarter of its gasoline with sugarcane ethanol that's competitive without subsidy. Uh, they did subsidize it at first, uh, and that subsidy now phased out has been recovered 50 times over from the oil savings. Now, we can't compete with our corn ethanol with unsubsidized Brazilian uh, cane ethanol, so we have an illegal tariff that roughly doubles their price if they bring it into this country. That will expire or the World Trade Organization will make it go away, whichever happens first. Sweden has a nifty plan to get completely off oil by 2020 or the new government of a different stripe says 2030 by a cellulosic ethanol. There's even a hydrogen stage in it. Five years ago, Europe, which is a lesser agricultural power than the U.S., made 17 times as much biodiesel as we did. Over half of it sold by oil companies as a branded product. 
and it was part of a deliberate strategy to shift farmers from temporary subsidies to durable revenues. Now here's how all the moving parts fit together. Instead of needing the forecast 28 million barrels a day of petroleum products in 2025, we could by then use $12 a barrel efficiency to substitute for almost 8 million barrels a day and still be in the course of capturing another seven of savings as we complete the turnover of the vehicle fleets. To get the needed 20 net million barrels a day, we could get almost six from biofuels and biomaterials by then, almost two from no-brainer substitutions of saved natural gas that make sense at any relative prices, almost eight from forecast production of domestic oil from areas already allowed, and we need to get five from somewhere else. Where could that be? Well, efficiency is so cheap, maybe we should buy more of it or wait a little bit and get the other half of it that we hadn't yet captured. Or we could continue to buy a bit of oil from Canada and Mexico. Or by then, the Brazilian ethanol tariff will have gone away, so they can sell that to us instead of to Asia. Oh, I haven't yet accounted for two-thirds of the saved natural gas. I only used a third of it over here. It turns out the other two-thirds can substitute directly for our five million barrels a day balanced term of oil, or if we want to make the most money off that saved gas, we'll actually make it into hydrogen that can be used more efficiently and therefore could also displace all the domestic oil. And I'm not counting other options like just wind power in, on tribal land in the Dakotas could by then cost effectively make 50 million tons of hydrogen a year. That's as much as the world makes for industry now. And that would be enough at these levels of efficiency to run every highway vehicle in the United States. So we have a lot of options. But the hydrogen part of this story is optional. It is not necessary to get off oil, but it could well make sense because when the cars get as efficient as our tripled efficiency SUV, it takes only a third the power to move them so they can cruise on the highway on the same power to the wheels that a normal SUV uses on a hot afternoon to run the air conditioner. Yeah, we also have an air conditioner in the design, but it uses a seventh the normal amount of energy. Well, when you need that little power to move such a light, slippery vehicle, the hydrogen tanks for your 330-mile driving range get so much smaller that they fit, they package well, leaving plenty of room for people and cargo and not requiring any breakthrough in storage technology. Moreover, the fuel cell, this little thing with an X back here, is three times smaller, so you can pay three times more per kilowatt. So you need 30-odd times less cumulative production volume to get the cost down far enough to compete, and that'll take 10 or 20 years off the deployment time. So if you compare the 35-kilowatt fuel cell used in that design versus the much larger ones used in other people's fuel cell cars, which have a shorter range, you start to see the importance of ultralighting, which in our SUV design was four times as important as making it a hybrid. Ultralighting accounted for about two-thirds of the fuel saving. And actually, this tells you that the first automaker to go ultralight is going to win the fuel cell race, the plug-in hybrid race, the battery car race, because, for example, 
if you're trying to make a fuel cell car, <clears throat> rather than putting your research dollars into making the fuel cell cheaper and the tanks smaller, you should make the car lighter. It'll get you to the same result with much less time, cost, and risk. Now, there are five ways government could help this happen faster. The most important have to do with getting super-efficient cars on the road faster, and the most powerful way we know to do that is called the fee-bate. It's a cross between a fee and a rebate. So you go to the dealer to buy a vehicle of the size you want, and within that size class, there are more or less efficient models on offer. The less efficient ones pay a fee, according to how inefficient they are. The more efficient ones get a rebate, the more efficient, the bigger the rebate, and the rebates are paid for by the fees on the inefficient ones. So within each size class, we're going to broaden the price spread so that when you go in as a buyer, you're going to look at all 14 years' worth of fuel savings, not just the first year or two. So you'll make a decision that's efficient for society. It turns out the automakers make more money this way because they want to get their cars from the fee zone into the rebate zone by adding more technology for more efficiency, and that extra technology content has an inherently higher margin than the rest of the vehicle. The dealers make a lot more money too. Today they make about twice the margin on hybrids that they do on non-hybrids, for example. Now we have many Americans who now face the choice between feeding the kids and feeding the car. And, of course, if you don't feed the car, you can't get to work, and then you can't feed the kids anyway. So this is not a good choice. But <clears throat> we found that through some creative financial engineering modeled partly on Sally May, the student loan agency, we could actually get a low-income family for anywhere from zero to a few dollars a day into a very efficient, reliable new car with price-hedged gasoline and insurance bundled in a car, in other words, that a low-income household can afford to run. Now let's couple that with prematurely scrapping the dirtiest old clunkers to get them off the road faster and clean up the air faster, and the combination creates a million-car-a-year market that Detroit would never get otherwise because these are not credit-worthy customers. They could never imagine buying a new car before. They had fourth-generation clunkers. So Detroit rather likes this idea. Governments buy a lot of fleet vehicles. Well, why don't we buy efficient ones? Why aren't our municipal vehicles all hybrids, just like the Prius taxi I saw at the airport when I got in here the other night? And uh, we can use, uh, I don't know, maybe they are. If so, congratulations. If not, you know what to do. Um, there are uh, other ways to get innovations out of the lab and onto the showroom floor faster uh, in fact, we invented something called the Platinum Carrot, which is now coming into being as the Automotive X Prize. In the case of heavy trucks, what was needed turned out to be information. My MBAs brought in spreadsheets showing you can triple the efficiency of an 18-wheeler with a 60% internal rate of return by artfully combining some proven technologies. And I said, gee, isn't it odd that hasn't been done yet? The truckers are very competitive. They have sharp pencils. What's going on? Gee, I wonder if maybe the buyers don't know they can do this. So I called up the heads of some big companies we work with that operate lots and lots of trucks, 
and said, did you know you could do this? And they said, no, that's really interesting. The truck maker said we could save maybe a tenth of the fuel and it would cost a lot. How do you save two thirds? So I told them and the answer I got back was basically, well, let's build one and test it. And if it does what you say, we'll tell them that's what we want. That's the right answer. So we started facilitating conversations between one such company and its truck suppliers and it didn't take long for them to figure out that the first 25% saving is free. Gee, why didn't you ask? And then the buyer said, free's not good enough. I want to invest for a return. What can you do for me? And then they started arguing about whether they'll end up with 13, 16, 18, 20 miles a gallon instead of the six they were then at. Well, the company's Walmart, biggest company in the world. So every mile per gallon that they improve their truck fleet by adds over $50 million a year to their bottom line. So they're going to make billions going to the double deficiency trucks, which their CEO declared in October 05, they are demanding from their suppliers. So they'll have a double deficiency 2015 fleet. They are already nearly complete this year on the first 25% fuel economy improvement. Uh, and they are very highly motivated. So we're using their demand pull to drag double deficiency trucks into the market where everybody can buy them. Uh, and then we'll go on to triple deficiency with them and others. Now, in the case of airlines, it's a little different problem. Philosophically, you may or may not want to help the legacy airlines that can't afford to get efficient new planes to dig out of their fuel cost hole. But if you did, a good way to do it would be federal loan guarantees offset by equity warrants so there's no net cost to the Treasury. It's like the way we did the Chrysler bailout. And the loan guarantees would be used only for buying very efficient new planes on condition that for every plane so financed, you scrap one of the inefficient old planes parked in the desert so it will never fly again because if it does, it will waste more oil and block the adoption and development of even more efficient new planes. So those old uh, inefficient planes parked in the desert are worth more dead than alive. We should take them out back and shoot them. We should put bounties on them. Boeing likes this idea. Well, there are also important R&D components, which I'll mention in a minute in the context of military research for their own purposes. The stakeholders have already agreed on how to reduce investment risk in retooling, how to finance retooling and retraining through loan guarantees that again have no net cost to Treasury. Uh, and there are other ways through USDA rules, for example, to speed the transition from hydrocarbons to carbohydrates in a way that actually enhances and not degrades soil fertility and does not interfere with food production. And there are other ways in which we can get out of our own path uh, <coughs> But when you add it all up, these would be quite a reasonable, often state-led way uh, to shift the policy slate to favor what makes sense for business. And we know that big, fast changes can happen because whatever exists is possible. In the 1920s, it took the auto industry six years to shift from wood to steel auto bodies. At the start of World War II, it took Detroit six months to shift altogether from making cars to making the stuff that won the war. In eight years, when we last paid attention to oil, we were 
reducing oil per dollar of GDP by over 5% a year and improving the efficiency of our new cars by nearly 5% a year, 96% of that change from making cars smarter, 4% from making them smaller. Boeing has flipped the competitive relations in the airframe industry in five years. More on that later. GM took the EV1 battery car in a small team from launch to street in just three years. Generally, it takes about 12 to 15 years in the normal technological diffusion S-curve to go from 10 to 90% adoption. But the kinds of innovative policies I described uh, support innovative business strategies that can speed up the takeoff point by three years and then make adoption much faster. So in the case of cars, we would quickly jump over the incrementally improved from today's inefficient cars models and quickly introduce tripled efficiency cars that would have taken the whole market by the 2040s in the, in the stock. I think the best example of what I mean by a breakthrough competitive strategy is what Boeing has done. Boeing, a decade ago, was in as deep a crisis as Detroit is right now. And they got their costs back under control with Toyota production system, but it was a pretty wrenching journey. And there wasn't really exciting innovation in the pipeline after the 777. There was a Sonic Cruiser, but it soon died of oil prices. Airbus was pulling ahead. Some observers were starting to doubt Boeing's staying power. But Boeing's bold response, riposte, in 2004 was the 787 Dreamliner saving a fifth of the fuel at the same price, made half of carbon fiber composites by weight, uh, bigger windows, higher pressure cabin, nicer for passengers, much easier to make, final assembly down to three days from 11 or so, and it has had the fastest order takeoff of any airplane in history. It sold out well into 2016. And those innovations will now be rolled out into everything Boeing makes before Airbus can even steer itself out of the ditch. And then I dare say Boeing will probably use its momentum and cash flow to go to doubled and then tripled efficiency planes. So what we have here is a breakthrough competitive strategy based on a leapfrog in platform efficiency, based on advanced materials and manufacturing, design integration, and propulsion, all artfully combined. At Rocky Mountain Institute, we're busy implementing the oil in-game through what we call institutional acupuncture. That means we figure out where the business logic is congested and not flowing properly, and we carefully stick little needles in it to get it flowing. We need to shift the behavior of six sectors. Aviation, we don't need to do much. Boeing's flipped that one already although we can speed it further. Heavy trucks, Walmart with other buyers coming in now uh, <clears throat> has created the demand pull to move that market. The Pentagon is emerging as the leader within our federal government in getting the nation off oil, mostly in the short term to reduce the cost in blood and treasure of moving oil into the battle space and around because we have whole divisions of people hauling fuel convoys and trying to protect fuel convoys, and they get blown up a lot. 
about half the casualties in theater are related to convoys and 70% of what they haul is fuel. A good way to solve that problem is not to need so much fuel or not to need any fuel because you're making it on site. We have a two-star Marine general in Western Iraq begging for efficiency at renewables to untether him from oil and free up his forces for their primary mission. Well, it has also occurred to military leaders that <clears throat> they can drive research and, and, and uh, technology work to make their platforms three times more efficient uh, in the same way that military R&D already gave us the internet, the global positioning system, the jet engine industry, the microchip industry, that military science and technology investment in efficient military vehicles can spill over into our tripled efficiency cars, trucks, and planes and make those happen better and faster. Well, our civilian transport sector uses over 60 times as much oil as the Pentagon uses itself. Just the saving from Walmart's double efficiency trucks when everybody buys them will save four times the oil that the Pentagon uses for everything. So where this adventure is headed is nega missions in the Persian Gulf, mission unnecessary. Warfighters really like that idea, as you can imagine. And uh, yes, they will become more capable warfighters when they have much more fuel-efficient forces and leaner force structures, but they'll also need to fight a lot less because oil will no longer be a strategic commodity. We'll do to oil the same thing we did to salt. Jim Woolsey, the former head of the CIA, points out that countries used to fight wars over salt before we had refrigeration. Now salt is a minor item you might sprinkle on your steak, but you don't really worry about where it comes from. Oil is going to be like that. It'll be the whale oil story all over again, and many of you will live to see that. There is very strong activity in alternative fuels and in finance. The clean energy space worldwide last year got $117 billion with a B of new private investment capital. But we always knew that the hardest, slowest sector to shift would be automaking. Well, I wrote in winning the oil endgame that I thought Detroit ought to do what Boeing was doing. Ford Motor Company went out and hired the head of Boeing Commercial Airplanes as its new CEO. And he's now in Dearborn with transformational intent. The UAW and the National Association of Auto Dealers are hungry for basic innovation because they know the customers need it, the industry needs it. And this wave of creative destruction, as Schumpeter called it, is sweeping over the industry, opening minds to levels of change that were previously unthinkable, further stimulated by the prospect of leapfrogs in China and in India. You may have noticed uh, Tata in India just released a $2,500 car. Well, that was the first radical clean sheet redesign of a car in this industry in decades. And you can argue about its various attributes. Could it be done better? Could it be done for other kinds of markets? But the important thing is they really thought it through afresh with some very clever design integration. That has important competitive lessons. Our own outfit last summer had two transformative projects in the auto industry. They both turned up trumps. One of them has since spun off. 
we ran a, a little private meeting with the industry on how to do fee baits properly. That's roused a lot of interest. Basically, the competition at a level we haven't seen since the 1920s is changing the automakers, managers, or their minds, whichever comes first. And two of the big three are now run by non-car guys. That was unthinkable a few years ago. So new thinking is coming. You can kind of hear the trumpets in the distance. And of these six sectors, I'd say we're already past the tipping point with at least three and quite possibly four. It's coming along nicely. What does this mean for climate and for oil supply? The conventional view in the oil industry is that this many trillion barrels can be extracted at increasing costs. So in a perfectly competitive free market with no OPEC cartel, this is how the price of the oil would go up. And you gradually get into stuff like uh, Venezuelan heavy oils and tar sands and oil shales and then coal to liquids. It gets really expensive and disagreeable. Well, if you conservatively scale to the world, the savings and supply substitutions that we analyzed in winning the oil endgame and splice them into this supply curve, everything shifts three trillion barrels to the right. That's a long time. One trillion barrels is the total the world has used so far. Moreover, because you not only stretch out the existing conventional supplies, but you also don't get to the very carbon-intensive ones at the right-hand end, you cumulatively save over a trillion tons of carbon emissions, and you save tens of trillions of dollars, plus however much monopoly rent OPEC would have charged you. You'll notice I have not mentioned the peak oil argument. That's because nobody can know who's right about it, but it doesn't matter who's right, because we ought to do the same things anyway just to save money. And I don't need one more reason, thank you very much, to worry about oil, given the scale of the treasure transfer underway and how the whole system hangs by a thread. Saudi oil, the sole source of liquidity in the world oil market right now, well, two-thirds of it goes through one processing plant that's already been attacked, and two terminals larger, which has been attacked twice, and that doesn't count two major roundups of folks who were intending to blow up major facilities unnamed, maybe the same ones. So I don't know what part of this we don't get. I don't know how long we go on being lucky, but it's worrisome. In fact, I'd say the most comprehensive threat to our national energy security is our federal energy policy. These wounds are self-inflicted. Our policy, our policy perpetuates our expanding oil dependence. We bailed out the bankrupt Iranian treasury and the nearly bankrupt Saudi treasury. Folks like Ahmadinejad and Chavez and Putin, we basically bankrolled them. And what we're doing right now, Tom Friedman describes correctly, is money laundering. We're borrowing money from the Chinese and sending it to the Saudis. We're funding both sides of the war and losing a lot of moral stature in the process. And as Secretary Rice says, warping our foreign policy, our postures, our attitudes about us, making our economy less competitive and much less secure. At the same time, our energy policy nationally strongly favors over-centralized system architecture, building bigger power plants, bigger power lines, all the things that make regional blackouts worse. 
I wrote the definitive unclassified study of domestic energy vulnerability for the Pentagon back in 81 and pointed out that in those days, a handful of people could turn off three quarters of the oil and gas to the eastern states in one evening without even leaving Louisiana. Sorry if Katrina read that. We're creating fat new terrorist targets, uh, LNG terminals, nuclear facilities, Iraqi infrastructure. A lot of it's in or near our own cities. The centerpiece of federal energy policy, amazingly, is still to create a new all-American Strait of Hormuz on the north slope of Alaska. The most vulnerable part of our energy infrastructure is the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, so the White House would like to double its throughput and perpetuate dependence on it for decades. I always thought one Strait of Hormuz was more than enough. And since the President has correctly identified the spread of nuclear weapons as the gravest threat to our security, it's very odd that he keeps trying to encourage the spread of nuclear weapons every way he can think of in the form of do-it-yourself bomb kits wrapped in innocent civilian disguise and trying to revive a moribund activity called reprocessing, which is extremely proliferative. I recently showed this slide at STRATCOM and said, if as military professionals you feel that these are not the national security outcomes you want, it's your duty to say so. I think we're starting to hear more of that kind of feedback, and I hope that the more comprehensive military perspective on what really makes us safe will start to be heard more in the councils of our government. What are we waiting for to get all this journey beyond petroleum done? Well, we're the people we've been waiting for. And if anything that I've said seems a little implausible, I would just invite you to reflect on a nice remark of Marshall McLuhan, who said that only puny secrets need protection. Big discoveries are protected by public incredulity. It's your move. Thank you very much. Well, is this enough for uh, two or three weeks' digestion? Did I say anything controversial? Uh, not yet. Good. But I hope we can get to some of that in the questions. As, as a part of the Ian Thompson program and a tie back to the university, there is a, a sub-program known as the Ian Thompson Scholars. And it's a group of freshmen who come in with honors. I think you may have been in touch with some of those people. They get the privilege always of the first question. And I get the privilege of selecting from their questions. So this is their first question. What is, <clears throat> excuse me, the first step and what can we as college students do to help make this vision for the planet a reality? 
become informed, become engaged, <clears throat> talk to the people you know. People around you are interested in your views and they watch your behavior, whether it's in your geographic and scholarly communities, your work communities, your faith communities, whatever circles you move in, you can teach a lot of people. The uh, Build Community Organizer, Saul Alinsky, when asked how you change people's minds, how do you move a society, he said, oh, it's easy. First you talk to one person, and then you talk to two people. <laughs> Good. And uh, being in a great university, you have opportunities to learn anything you want to learn and take that knowledge anywhere you really have juice to go do. Thank you very much. It sounds like advice that would fit all of us. Um, one more from the student group. If the market hasn't gotten on board with more efficient energy technologies and sources by now, what will it take for the market to adopt the new technologies and policies in the future? Anyone got a two by four? <laughs> no, I, I think uh, more is happening than you might realize. In 2006, the U.S. was using 54% less oil, 64% less directly used natural gas, 48% less total energy, 17% less electricity, two-thirds less water to make a dollar of real GDP than it used in 1975. So we've already more than doubled the efficiency of using oil despite stagnant light vehicle efficiency for 20 years. That's the biggest use. Without even tapping that, we've still wrung so much oil out of the rest of the economy. Well, now that the logjam has started to break on vehicle efficiency, not just because of you know, the new federal cafe stand standard improvement, but also because of competitive imperatives. Uh, <clears throat> you know, Prius last year outsold Explorer. It outsold every Ford platform except the F-Series pickups. Uh, I just saw four Priuses in a row in Plano, Texas. <laughs> Sign of the times. Uh, there's a lot going on out there that we may not see. And I think the floodgates are, are uh, you know, leaking heavily and just about to burst. Uh, working a lot with automakers around the world, I see the intensity of their, their desire uh, to leapfrog before their competitors do it to them. And uh, it's a very, very exciting time to be doing this kind of work. The uh, sense of possibility has expanded so much. I think when the Defense Science Board report I've been helping with, uh, more fight, less fuel, comes out in the next few weeks, you'll be quite astonished by what's in there. Hmm. We'll stick with the ultralight uh, carbon fiber uh, process for just a, a moment. How is carbon fiber material created, and is its production sustainable? 
Most carbon fiber, almost all of it, is made from polyacrylonitrile, which is a white uh, fiber-like orlon, <coughs> and uh, that in turn is made typically of propane, although if you prefer to make it from a carbohydrate instead of a hydrocarbon, that's easy. Propane's a small molecule, molecules is molecules. They don't care where they come from. Uh, <coughs> you then carbonize <coughs> the, that pan polyacrylonitrile fiber in a controlled atmosphere to make half as much black fiber, and a part like this is two-thirds carbon fiber, one-third thermoplastic. Uh, the thermoplastic, again, is conventionally made of oil but can easily be made of carbohydrates instead. The production process uh, produces a small amount of nasty stuff which is very easily captured at standard chemical engineering cleanup technique. And uh, there are newer techniques for carbonization involving, for example, tuned microwaves that are <clears throat> much cleaner and cheaper and more effective. The carbon fiber industry is happy to make as much of the stuff as you'll sign purchase orders for. The price recently doubled or tripled when Boeing and Airbus both started making new airframes out of half carbon without having a forward market with futures and options and carbon to smooth out the fluctuations. But uh, price will come right back as, as the next year or so elapses and the production catches up with the demand. If every car were a hypercar and you didn't recycle them, which is straightforward to do with this stuff, uh, and they lasted only as long as steel cars, then the, although the carbon fiber production would go up by about a hundredfold, the uh, total polymer production would go up by just one or two years normal growth. It's not a big deal in terms of, of mass flow. I mean, right now the advanced composite mass made in the world is about the same as the amount of chocolate made. It's a pretty small market, and even if you increase it a hundredfold, it's still not much. However, this material does not rust, it does not fatigue, it doesn't even dent in a six mile an hour fender bouncer, so the car could last a very long time before you even recycle it. And maybe you want to lease the body like an airframe to get the durability benefit rather than just selling it. Uh, a question of personal privilege. I drive a Prius, and in this climate, it's uh, not aerodynamic from the side. Crosswind. Hmm. Now, in, it, it in, does it not handle very well in crosswind? Well, it moves around a little, um, mm -hmm. but in an, uh, an ultralight. Ah. What good, would good be the okay. condition? You remember the uh, Sun Racer cars? They're kind of a flying wing that you lie down in, and it's all solar panels, and you drive it across Australia real fast under solar power. Well, those are passed in the opposite lane by uh, multi-trailer land caravans going 100 miles an hour that can <laughs> blow a regular car off the road, and they don't affect the sun racers. Why not? Because their aerodynamics are designed to convert that buffeting side wind into downforce or neutral. If you were to look, for example, at the front end of that SUV design I showed you, the sides come up smoothly, and then before it meets the roof, there's just a little two millimeter dip whose effect is to spill the laminar flow into turbulence so it won't suck on the downwind side and force your car to the side. Of course, the car also has automatic stability controls, but 
basically you solve this problem through aerodynamic design and it's quite straightforward to do so. You can make the car essentially invisible to crosswind. Okay. Um, this is a two-part question. What kind of car do you drive? Realistically, how far away are hydrogen vehicles? I drive a 2001 Honda Insight. I had at the time a, cross, uh, or a choice between that and the earlier version of the Prius, which is a terrific car. It was a difficult choice, but I chose the Insight because it's even lighter and has lower air, air drag. So, you know, on the logic that I described, even though it doesn't have quite as sophisticated a powertrain, I went for the better platform physics. And it turns out that my two-seat aluminum hybrid weighs exactly the same as the five-seat carbon SUV I showed you. That's how light carbon is. My inside runs on a 0.96-liter engine, three-cylinder, a little teensy engine boosted with 10 kilowatts of extra mild hybrid electric torque. Imagine running a five-seat SUV on a one-liter engine. Well, you can do that and get very good performance. <laughs> same weight, same drag. I mean, it'll have more payload, so you'd up it a little bit, but that you do that with with an electric hybrid. And, and uh, <clears throat> let's see, and the second question was? Uh, realistically, how far away oh, are hydrogen vehicles? Oh, about minus four or five years. Uh, that is, there are <clears throat> at least hundreds of them on the road already. If you go to... I believe it's hydrogen.org. Um, there's a site of the Bülko Institute in Germany that lists every hydrogen car that's been announced. And there are also uh, somewhere between scores and hundreds of hydrogen fueling stations, depending on how you define them. These are all, of course, experimental. They're expensive. The fuel cells are handmade by PhDs on a lab bench but some of them are moving rather nicely toward production. GM has said, and I believe them, that at very high production volume starting 2010, they would be prepared to make uh, fuel cell systems for $50 a kilowatt. That's really cheap. Of course, if they make very heavy cars, the fuel cells will still be unattractively big but maybe they'll make ultra-light cars like they did as a concept car in 91, and that one was terrific. And about his response to the question about his own car, remember that he lives at over 7,000 feet in the Rocky Mountains. So, so I have less air resistance. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, however, I have a lot of snow and slush on the roads, and the batteries don't like low temperatures as well. Hmm. So I actually come out a little behind. It okay. cost me maybe two miles a gallon. Shifting to politics. Snow tires, you know. Have you been approached by the presidential candidates about energy consulting? If so, which ones? If not, have you contacted any of them? Well, RMI and I are completely apolitical and nonpartisan. If anybody of either party would like our advice, we'll be happy to give it and we'll give everyone else the same advice. Um, <clears throat> I know some of the candidates, they have not asked for advice. 
some of their campaigns have asked for my support, but I can't be associated with any candidate or party, so I've declined. Um, when they get to the point of being interested in my advice rather than my name, we can talk. <laughs> and I, for one, hope you get that opportunity. What well, advice? I, I'm I sorry. I was once sounded out on being Secretary of Energy in a previous administration and uh, said, well, could I blow up the department and start over <laughs> and take all the bombs and clean up out of the building so it's just a civilian energy department so it can really do that mission properly? Mm -hmm. That was the end of that conversation. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's why we didn't see a, an inauguration. What advice would you give to small town mayors in Nebraska who have encouraged investment in corn-based ethanol plants? Enjoy it while it lasts. Uh, <laughs> the illegal tariff on Brazilian uh, cane ethanol will expire in a few years, and I don't know how corn ethanol can compete with that. Now. I did recently work with the National Renewable Energy Lab and some of my colleagues on a corn stover ethanol plant. Starting with what they thought was a good design, we figured out how to save uh, half the steam, 60% of the electricity, and about 30% of the capital cost. So it may be that if you do that as an add-on stage on top of, you know, piggybacking on and integrated with an existing corn ethanol plant, it might lower the total marginal production cost enough to compete with Brazilian ethanol. We don't know that yet, but it would be in the right ballpark. Uh, <clears throat> meanwhile, of course, cellulosic ethanol will be getting cheaper, uh, not just for corn stover, but for uh, more sensible inputs like switchgrass. And uh, that would be very promising. We did figure uh, that for rural America as a whole, when you combine biofuel revenues payments for putting carbon back in the topsoil and wind royalties where it's windy, you would expect approximately a tripling and possibly a quadrupling of net farm and ranch income on average. A new way of farming. Um, w and on this topic, would hemp compare with some of the other biofuels? I'm not sure I would use hemp as a fuel, but it has very interesting applications <laughs> as a fiber, industrial fiber. Mm. And uh, there is some serious work in India in particular, which has a long hemp tradition, uh, that I just uh, heard in Mumbai a couple of months ago on making automotive composites out of the stuff. Normally, in this country, we think that's not feasible because it absorbs water and becomes dimensionally unstable but some of the uh, Indian researchers think they found a solution for that. Much of your presentation has focused on large corporate enterprise. Where and how does the small business owner enter this economic stream? Everywhere and crucially because they tend to have much faster innovation, greater agility and closer uh, intimacy with the market. So I've now helped spin off uh, 
five little for-profit businesses and still lead another one that's an entrepreneurial nonprofit. And uh, I think we're going to need every size and shape of business we can get co-evolving with civil society to be as dynamic as the world requires of us. Okay. Government will be faster at a local and state level than federally, but in most cases, government will still play catch up to the private sector. And we'll end the Q&A on an economic question. In what year should one begin to short oil stocks? I'm not qualified or legally allowed to give investment <laughs> advice. However, uh, I've worked in the oil industry since about 73. It's very complicated and there are no two companies alike. So first of all, uh, no, you know, beware of all generalizations. Um, it turns out, rather surprisingly, that a world that buys no oil will be more profitable for the owners of oil. And the reason is that the hydrogen in the hydrocarbons is worth more without the carbon than with the carbon, even if no one pays you to keep carbon out of the air. That's because the hydrogen can be used several times as efficiently as the hydrocarbon can. Therefore, if you own a lot of hydrocarbons, you will ultimately make more money taking hydrogen out of them in a reformer than putting hydrogen into them in a refinery, which is what we do now. So that's, that's an interesting twist that I introduced about oh, six, seven years ago. The oil majors have now done their sums and come to the same conclusions. At least three of the world's five biggest coal producers now agree with this also because what coal is really good at its highest and best use is pulling hydrogen out of steam. And you can do that in a carbon sequestered way that, that looks quite attractive and will get to compete with renewable sources of hydrogen and with reforming natural gas. So those companies are now viewing their coal assets through the lens of the hydrogen value chain. Um, think a minute about the oil business strategically. Okay, you run an oil company, so you only own, on average, 6% of your reserves. About 94% is owned by governments that can do to you whatever they want, because they're sovereign and you're not. Um, you're in an unpopular business that is, in some ways, powerful, in others, weak. It is meddled with, interfered with, attacked in various ways. Uh, it is extremely capital intensive, has very high risks and very long lead times. Wow, what a recipe for headaches. Oh, and by the way, you're a price taker in a volatile market. Why would you want to be in a business like that? This is why smart people running oil companies have been seeking graceful ways out of the oil business since the 70s. And some of them are well along in that transition. Shell is the world's biggest seller of biofuel. And there are many others of that sort. Now, oil companies differ in the quality of their 
portfolios, what kinds of diversified options they've acquired, and obviously the time to buy options is when prices are high and times are good, because when the opposite is true, that's when you need to exercise your options. It's otherwise, it's too late. It's like trying to buy the fire insurance once your house is on fire. But uh, the oil industry is dividing into the quick and the dead, or the smart and the not so smart. And uh, it's really interesting to be in the middle of that and uh, help herd the sheep and goats a little faster. Thank you. I bet. And it is that we all live in interesting times, and you're helping us make it more enjoyable. Thank you very much, Amory. Thank you.